Hi, friends. Welcome to Have You Met Her, the podcast about amazing women. I'm Paige, and I'm excited to start this five-part series for the month of March. This month, we'll be celebrating women who use their powerful voices to inspire change, speak for those who couldn't speak for themselves, share their passions, and get attention by speaking their truths. Don't worry, there won't be a test at the end of this. Just sit back, relax, and enjoy episode one, Have You Met? Congresswoman Barbara Jordan. Barbara Charlene Jordan was born in the Fifth Ward of Houston, Texas on February 21st, 1936. She lived with her parents and her two older sisters, and all of her grandparents lived nearby, also in the Fifth Ward. Barbara's favorite person was her maternal grandfather, John Ed Patton. Grandpa Patton adored Barbara and called her my heart. He operated a junkyard and every Sunday, Barbara and Grandpa would spend the day working side by side and talking. While Barbara's family was at church learning about sins, Grandpa Patton would talk to Barbara about loving yourself, working hard, and being a lifelong learner. Barbara loved that her grandfather talked to her like a person and not a little kid. He told her that she could do anything with her life, and Barbara believed him. Because of where the world was in the 1930s and 40s, and because Barbara was black and lived in Texas, there was a lot of racial tension around her. But because she lived in the Fifth Ward, surrounded by people who looked like her, most of the tension went over her head. She was happy with her life, even when her father started preaching and demanding that she attend church instead of spending Sundays in the junkyard, she still felt secure and liked her life. By the time that Barbara was in third grade, she was physically larger than most of the kids in her class. Unlike most girls that age, with that experience, she refused to make herself smaller or quieter. She knew that deep down she was somebody special. Grandpa Patton and her time with him had taught her to be proud, passionate, and driven. He taught her to embrace her differences, her dark skin, her large, strong body, her beautiful hair texture, and most of all, her capable mind. With her self-assurance and Grandpa Patton's encouragement, she completely believed in herself. In her later life, she's quoted as saying, You've got to be able to love yourself, love yourself strongly, and not let people disabuse you of your self-respect. Barbara had always been a loud child. Some of her friends commented that she was loud and a leader. They looked at her like the boss. She wasn't overly bossy. She just had a vibe that made kids listen to her. When Barbara was in her mid-teens, her regular loud voice changed. While her voice had always been loud, her voice now had a depth to it. It was harmonic and clear. That, together with her precise dictation, was something special, and Barbara decided to put this new talent to some very good use. She already had a mind for memorizing, so she started reciting poems and scriptures in church. She participated in an oratorical contest, and she joined the debate team. Barbara loved the debate team. She poured herself into research and practice, and she won a lot of awards. 
When Barbara was a senior in high school, she started thinking about what she wanted to be when she grew up. At that time, there were two career choices for most black students, teaching or ministry. Neither option excited her or felt like enough to Barbara. Then, one day, an impressive female African-American lawyer from Chicago spoke at her high school. Edith Spurlock Sampson had been traveling to black schools to encourage high school students across the country to consider law as a career. Ms. Sampson had been the first woman of any race to receive her Master of Law degree from Loyola University in Chicago in 1926. To say that Ms. Sampson made an impression on Barbara would be a huge understatement. It wasn't just her accomplishments that impressed Barbara. It was her poise, her dress, her voice, and passion. It was something that Barbara had never seen before. Don't worry, we'll have an entire episode on Edith Spurlock Sampson in the future. Barbara talked about Ms. Sampson's presentation later in her life and compared it to a conversion experience. She decided to become a lawyer that day. Barbara, or BJ as her friends now called her, began college at Texas Southern University, pledging with Delta Sigma Theta sorority. The Deltas had distinct feminist leanings and believed that the role of women should be changed. They believed that women were just as entitled to a career as men were, and they also developed a legacy of social action and service in the African-American community. It was a perfect fit for Barbara, although her father wasn't so thrilled. He wasn't willing to give her money for the sorority membership dues, so Barbara started babysitting and cleaning houses to finance her social activities. Barbara also joined the debate team at TSU. Tom Freeman was the debate coach, and he was considered like a showman debater. He was very like animated and over the top almost. And lots of Barbara's teammates wanted to imitate his mannerisms and style. Barbara already had her own style and flair, but she was able to polish it well under Coach Freeman. And he said that Barbara was one of the best orators ever. He also pointed out that it was always very important to listen to what Barbara was saying instead of how she was saying it, or else anyone that listened to her would get lost in her performance. In 1952, the TSU debate team was scheduled to do some traveling so that they could debate against other schools. Coach Freeman wasn't comfortable with Barbara traveling with the team. He didn't want to compromise the reputation of a female student by traveling with a car full of men. Barbara previously had tried to soften up her look by curling her hair, wearing pearls and earrings, and putting on high heels but she really wanted to travel with the team. So she cut her hair, started wearing boxy jackets and flat shoes. These changes gave her an androgynous look. It was a style that she was much more comfortable with. And after she revealed her new look, Barbara traveled with the team. During Barbara's time at TSU, she competed and mostly won in debates against all the local black schools and a lot of the white schools too. 
when she was a junior, there were students visiting from Harvard University for some debates, and she went up against them. That debate ended in a tie. But years later, when Harvard awarded Barbara an honorary Harvard degree, she remembered that debate and that tie, and she said that she now considered it a win. While Barbara was busy knocking everyone's socks off at her college and with her debating skills, the Supreme Court in 1954 was also making a lot of waves. The court had overturned Plessy v. Ferguson, the sometimes referred to as the separate but equal law, which upheld state-opposed Jim Crow laws, and they also declared Brown versus the Board of Education, which ruled that separate but equal had no place in the field of public education. Both of these changes gave the impression uh, that education was going to change for everyone. Barbara knew about these decisions, but she had honestly never felt that her education was lacking because she attended segregated schools. Besides, she kept mopping the floor at debate contests with the students from the white schools, so how much better could those schools be? Law school was still her goal, but Barbara decided now she could set her sights on options outside of Texas. Coach Freeman was a Boston University alumnus, and he suggested that Barbara look into Boston. He thought she would be a good fit for it, and it would be a good fit for her. So she sent away for information and the admission forms, and when they arrived, she thought it looked wonderful every way except for the tuition cost. There was no way that she was going to be able to afford the tuition on her own, no matter how much she babysat or house cleaned. She knew that she'd have to ask her parents for help. Now, remember that the Jordan family didn't have a lot of money, and Barbara was the youngest of three. I'm sure that asking her parents was one of the hardest things that she'd ever had to do up until that point. But thankfully, Barbara's father saw that it was important for his daughter to get out of Texas in order to study law. I think that he was proud of all that she had accomplished, so he told her, This is more money than I have ever spent on anything or anyone. But if you want to go, we'll manage. I don't think that if he didn't believe she could do it, he wouldn't have offered. Barbara went to Boston University School of Law and joined the first year class of 250 students. Six of those were women, only two were black. Immediately, Barbara felt lost. She was homesick, being away from the familiarity of family, church, and her community. She'd never been around so many white people. The social dynamics were so different. She felt awkward and out of place for the first time. Also, law school was hard. Barbara quickly realized that her separate but equal education had been lacking. Her schooling hadn't prepared her for what was expected of her, and she was ashamed of what she didn't know. Barbara was also too proud to let on what she didn't know, so she'd study in a small study room in her dorm away from her peers. She did that most evenings, trying to catch up while also learning all the new things they were learning in class. By the end of her first year, she was able to pass with a score of 78.4. 
A score of 75 was needed to stay in law school, and that was way too close for Barbara's comfort. She knew that her family was sacrificing a lot to help her afford her education, and so she knew that she'd really have to dig in, and she really wanted to get better grades in her next year. During her second year of law school, Barbara was able to find a church in Boston that she really liked attending. This church taught a way of life that was full of love and possibility instead of the hellfire and damnation that she always associated with church. I'm sure that the style and tone of this new church reminded her of her grandpa Patton and that it felt familiar and comforting. She began navigating all the social circles at school and she felt more confidence in her inclusion. In her third year, things got easier and more interesting academically, and she graduated with an 80.86 average. She was one of the two remaining women in the class. Barbara passed the Massachusetts bar exam and was officially a lawyer. She applied for some jobs around Boston, but Barbara didn't find any meaningful positions. She was considering moving back to Houston when she got a terrible phone call. Grandpa Patton had been in a horrible accident, and she needed to get home quickly. She rushed home and was able to see him once more before he passed away. I'm sure that it was devastating for Barbara to lose the person who'd always been her biggest support, but I also think that he had done such a wonderful job of building Barbara up that she still heard his voice encouraging her through the rest of her life. I also think it was really special that he got to see her achieve her goal of becoming a lawyer. Now that Barbara was back in Houston, she took and passed the Texas bar exam in 1959. She was only the third African-American female attorney to ever practice law in Texas. She printed up some business cards and she began offering legal services like wills and divorces, mostly to people her family knew from church. She was working at her parents' dining room table, but realized that practicing law like this wasn't what she had expected. It wasn't demanding or challenging or exciting enough for her. She wanted to find something that kind of fulfilled that part of her. So she decided to volunteer at the local Kennedy Johnson presidential campaign headquarters. She was assigned to stuff envelopes and help answer phone calls. And she also attended a lot of rallies and was excited to be part of such an important campaign. One night, she was at a rally to Black Church and the election representative that was supposed to speak didn't show up. Barbara was asked to fill in and she agreed. She was always comfortable speaking to crowds, and she knew how to deliver an engaging performance. She did a great job, and when she returned to the campaign headquarters afterwards, she was told that she would not be stuffing envelopes anymore. They put her on the speaking tour. Barbara spoke at churches and civic clubs and even to white Democratic groups and at labor union rallies. Everyone found her exciting, engaging, and definitely effective. Barbara loved what she was doing. She felt proud that her words produced an effect and that she could channel enthusiasm into votes. Kennedy and Johnson won the presidential election in 1960, and Barbara was officially bitten by the political bug. 
Through her efforts during the election, Barbara had built a reputation for solid work, charm, and her ability to inspire a crowd. She definitely got noticed. She joined the Harris County Democrats, the NAACP, and the Harris County Council of Organizations. Their goal was to recruit black candidates to run for political office. They approached Barbara and asked her to consider running for the Texas legislature on a liberal labor minority coalition ticket. Barbara was intrigued, but she also knew that if she was going to consider running, she needed to be more professional. She was still practicing law at her parents' kitchen table, and the types of cases that she were working on were not earning her enough money to pay all the bills, let alone invest in her own campaign. She needed to find a position somewhere where she could make campaign-level money. In 1961, she applied to six colleges to teach during the summer sessions. She was offered a job teaching political science at Tuskegee, and she accepted that. She saved her salary, and when her contract was done, she returned to Austin and leased an office, sharing the expenses in this space with two other attorneys. She did some advertising and began working more and building a record as a community leader and as a public speaker. In 1962, Barbara Jordan agreed to run for the Texas House of Representatives. During her campaign, she spoke about changing the state funding procedures to break up the cash-rich University of Texas endowment so that they could spread that funding to other Texas colleges. She also spoke about the obligation that their community had to use welfare resources to take care of people who couldn't take care of themselves. Barbara was used to succeeding at anything she set her mind to, and so I'm sure she was disappointed and her pride was definitely bruised when she lost that election. Barbara's family now decided that since she had the political adventure out of her system, it was time for her to settle down and get married, just like her sisters had. Barbara, who never had a boyfriend or even went on dates, responded with, when I find someone as smart as me, then I'll get married. In 1963, she took a trip to Austin representing the NAACP. She stopped at the Texas Capitol building and observed the House of Representatives in action, along with the man who had beaten her in her election. She decided to run again. In 1964, while campaigning, she followed the advice of her financial supporters and bought more feminine clothes and tried for a softer image. She did resist the advice to get married because she believed that her passionate speeches and the backing of the right organizations would help her win. Even though Barbara received 97% of the black vote, she lost again. Now, for a person as driven as Barbara, a person who believed that if she could just work hard enough, she could achieve anything, this second loss stung badly. She also felt some betrayal from those that supported her, those organizations and the people who advised her. She decided 
that she had relied too much on other people's opinions and decisions, and she told herself if she were ever to run for anything ever again, she would only agree to do it on her own terms. Now, around this time, Harris County Judge Bill Elliott offered Barbara a job as his assistant. She excitedly accepted, which made her the first African-American female administrator in Harris County. But she also said she'd only do it if Judge Elliott would give her time off to work at her own practice and also continue her political adventures. This new position allowed her to make more contacts, especially outside of her ward. It allowed Barbara to establish herself in a much bigger way, in a much bigger area. It was also nice to get a steady paycheck. Barbara was busy, but so were the Texas courts when they decided an important court case called Kilgerlin versus Martin. What that did was it required Texas to draw new state Senate and House districts. It shifted six of the Senate seats away from rural to more urban districts, and one of those was in the heart of the city where Barbara was working. Barbara wanted that seat so bad that she was willing to take a third chance at a political campaign. By December of 1965, Barbara had told her friends and supporters about her decision to run, and she shared that there were two obstacles that she felt she had to overcome in order to be successful this time. The first obstacle was money. While she was making money working for the judge and through her work in her own firm, she certainly wasn't making, like, campaign money. And she also didn't want to be funded fully by organizations and then be forced to make changes due to their supporter advice. She asked around, and one of her former college debate team members was working at a nonprofit and offered her a contract position as a project director to train unemployed welfare recipients for jobs. It was a great fit. It allowed her to use her experience, contribute to her community, and have enough money for a campaign. The second obstacle was Charlie Whitfield, a Democratic incumbent state representative that also wanted that Senate seat. Barbara and Charlie both had established relationships with the unions and the support of the Harris County Democrats. Barbara and her opponent pled their cases for endorsements, and in the end, the Harris County Democrats swung their support Barbara's way. They said, if Charlie Whitfield gets elected, he'll be a fine senator. If Barbara Jordan gets elected, it'll be the beginning of modern history for Texas. Barbara kept her promise to herself and trusted her own instincts when it came to campaign decisions. In 1966, she received 64% of the vote, which didn't just mean that she'd won, but that she had kind of also kicked some butt. She'd become the first black female state senator in Texas history and the first black person to serve on the Texas Senate since 1883. It was a huge accomplishment, but now came the hard work. Barbara felt oddly similar to when she started at Boston University. She needed to figure out how she'd fit in the Senate, how to make connections with others, even when it didn't seem like they had anything in common, and most importantly, she needed to watch, listen, and learn. 
One month into her two-year term, President Lyndon B. Johnson invited her to Washington, D.C., along with some well-respected leaders in the civil rights movement, to discuss a fair housing bill. Her insights and perspective impressed the president, and he appointed her to the Special Economic Commission. It also began a lifelong friendship. In 1967, Barbara presented her first bill, which fought discrimination in the workplace. The bill passed with a vote of 30 to 1. Barbara was also vocal against a voter registration bill that discriminated against those with physical disabilities that made it so they couldn't write their name or mark their voting ballots without accommodation. We all know that politics can get a little messy and politicians can be a little loud and abrasive, but during Barbara's first year of service, she learned a valuable lesson. She said, Personal control is what is important, and that's not always easy. But if you explode, along with your exploding adversaries, then all you have is a shouting match, and nothing is ever resolved. In situations of that nature, you just hold on to your insides as tightly as you can and hope that others will just simmer down. When the session ended, Barbara Jordan was named Outstanding Freshman Senator. She'd clearly won the respect of her colleagues and the voters. In 1968, Barbara ran unopposed for her second term. She was so well-respected that no one wanted to run against her. Now that Barbara felt like she understood her role and felt secure in that role, she decided it was time to make some friends. Her sisters had always filled the role of her friends. They were close and she usually spent weekends and holidays with them. But now her sisters were married and had families of their own and Barbara decided to find herself a girl gang. She met a woman named A.Z. Taylor through her own community activity and found they had a lot in common. A.Z. worked for the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission and would be a lifelong friend who could relate to Barbara as a political activist and as an African-American woman. Barbara had also met Anne Appenzeller, who was the director of the YWCA in Austin. Anne had a group of friends that quickly began including Barbara in their social circle. Betty Whitaker, who was a social worker, and Nancy Earle, who worked at the Measurement and Evaluation Center at the University of Texas. These women were white, and they enjoyed activities that Barbara had never tried before. Camping, hiking, fishing, outdoorsy activities that Barbara grew to love and appreciate. These women were easy to be with. They cared about ideas and issues, but they didn't expect Barbara to be on all the time. These women became her first real friends, outside of the justices and her sisters. With them, she could relax, and she felt safe being herself. And herself wasn't the typical woman around that time. Our friend BJ had always enjoyed a few beers and had been sneaking cigarettes since she was 14 years old. While serving in the Senate, she also discovered that scotch and poker were the perfect accompaniments to building rapport with her Senate peers. I love that Barbara knew what she liked and that she had a little bad girl energy about her. 
1969, Barbara started her second term in the Texas Senate. She knew that now she understood her position and had gained the respect of her peers that she could really start to push to make changes. Two of the focuses during this term were helping pass the first minimum wage law in Texas. The press at the time called this a miracle, and although Barbara had to lower her number from $1.60 an hour to $1.25 an hour in order to gain the necessary support, she was really proud of this. Barbara was also instrumental in helping push through the first increase in benefits in 12 years for workers who were injured on the job. During her time in the Texas legislature, Barbara sponsored or co-sponsored over 70 bills. Barbara was getting things done and people were noticing. In 1971, Harper's Bazaar magazine published a list of the 100 women in touch with our time and Barbara was included. Also in 1971, Houston declared October 1st, 1971 as Barbara Jordan Day. As Barbara was being celebrated, more districting changes were happening in Texas. Those changes created a new U.S. congressional district. The new district was made up of a huge amount of Barbara Jordan supporters, and she wanted to run, and she expected to be elected. She wasn't unopposed, and she didn't want to appear too cocky, so she knew she'd have to fight hard and fight strong. Barbara kicked off her fundraising with a fancy event. 1,500 people attended. The lieutenant governor of Texas and the mayor of Houston made speeches in support of Barbara. But the highlight of the evening was the appearance of former President Johnson. He spoke to the group and said, Barbara Jordan proved to us that black was beautiful before we knew what that meant. She is a woman of keen intellect and unusual legislative ability. She is one of the most capable, caring ladies that I know. Barbara formally entered the U.S. congressional race in December of 1971. In March of 1972, Barbara was elected President Pro Tem of the Texas Senate. This meant that she worked as an assistant to the lieutenant governor and would serve as the governor if both the governor and lieutenant governor happened to be out of the state at the same time. This position made her the first black woman in America to oversee a legislative body. During the primaries in May, Barbara received 80% of the vote against her Democratic opponent and was expected to do almost as well against her Republican opponent in November. But before we get to that, we have to talk about the day that Barbara Jordan got to be governor of Texas. On June 10th, 1972, the governor and the lieutenant governor arranged to be out of state on the same day, leaving Barbara with the opportunity through her role as president pro tem to be the acting governor. Her day began with breakfast at the governor's mansion, and then she made her way down to the Capitol to be sworn in. The gallery was packed with her family, her friends, her colleagues, and supporters, and she let the applause and cheers go for as long as they wanted. She said that she could allow them to celebrate that long, because she was the governor. She spent the day signing proclamations and greeting visitors, seeming to have the time of her life. This day, although temporary, made her the first black woman governor of any state. During the afternoon, her sister let her know that her father, who'd been there earlier in the day, had gotten sick and they'd taken him to the hospital. 
Barbara went that evening to check on him, and she learned that he had suffered a stroke. He passed away the next morning, and Barbara said that she believed that if he could pick any day to die, it would have been after he had seen his daughter sworn in as governor. Barbara focused on the election and won her seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. The national news media celebrated Barbara's victory, and it seemed like everyone wanted to interview her. They wanted to invite her to events, request speeches and photographs. She was happy to oblige, but the invitation she was most excited about came from President Johnson. He invited her to attend the celebration of the opening of his civil rights papers to the public in December. She felt honored to spend time with her mentor. Now that she had won her seat in the House, she had to decide which committee assignment that she wanted to request. Um, Because she was a new congresswoman, she wanted to make a good choice, but she also knew that her request would be at the bottom list of priorities. She reached out to President Johnson and asked his advice. He recommended that she request the Judiciary Committee. She had another one in mind, but decided to go with his suggestion, and that's where she was assigned. Barbara Jordan was sworn into Congress on January 3, 1973. On January 22nd, Barbara got another sad phone call. It was the news that President Johnson had died. She spoke of what he had done, but also what President Johnson had meant to her personally. She said, Lyndon P. Johnson made me believe that I could be President of the United States. I believed it because he believed it. Can you imagine what such faith does for one's self-concept? No limits, free to soar, a level playing field, no artificial boundaries. He was saying to me, believe in yourself as I believe in you. I loved him and shall miss him. Barbara approached Congress the same way that she approached any new challenge. She poured everything she had into it. She worked 14-hour days and was always reading and studying. She studied the Constitution often so that she could always refer to it. She felt that if she didn't understand the history of a lot of the issues that arrived on the Congress floor, she should research them. She wanted to understand completely so that she felt she was able to have a complete opinion. While Barbara was digging into her new role, allegations against President Nixon became louder and louder regarding the Watergate scandal. The Senate turned to the Judiciary Committee to investigate and return a recommendation. It was during this time that Barbara began experiencing strange physical symptoms. She had numbness, tingling, and after putting off going to the doctor until she was too uncomfortable, Barbara was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. There was no cure, and treatment options for her symptoms were limited, mostly dangerously high amounts of steroids. Barbara swore the doctors to secrecy, told her staff not to tell anyone, and then decided to get back to work. This was Barbara's first chance to make a huge impression. And did she ever? After 14 months of investigating, the Judiciary Committee prepared to take a vote on whether to recommend impeachment. Each committee member was allowed 15 minutes to speak on their opinion. 
Most of the speeches reference the president's perceived guilt or innocence. Barbara listened to each and during the dinner break began to organize her own thoughts to get ready for her speech. She wanted to clarify whether the committee had the authority to investigate and if an investigation was warranted. At 1.50 a.m., she began her speech. She spoke eloquently of her strong belief in the Constitution, her belief that voting to recommend impeachment did not mean that she absolutely believed the president's guilt. She said the articles of impeachment were an important part of the checks and balances in our government. She said that the Watergate scandal would ruin the trust that Americans had for their government. This speech is listed as number 13 on the top speeches of the 20th century on American Rhetoric's top 100 list. I wish I could play this whole speech for you because it really does give you such a feel for how passionate she was, how well thought out and researched her opinion was, and what a leader she was. If you would like, it is available on YouTube and I would highly recommend listening to it. Unfortunately, before the impeachment process could begin, President Nixon resigned and Vice President turned President Ford pardoned him. Barbara felt like the American people had been cheated out of the truth and the satisfaction of a legal conclusion. In 1974, Barbara ran for a second congressional term. She won with 84.7% of the vote. Barbara continued to be a passionate, outspoken member of Congress, taking an active role in landmark decisions and introducing and supporting over 300 bills regarding crime, civil rights, fair trade laws, labor, bilingual ballots, abortion, education, and especially the Equal Rights Amendment. Barbara also supported the Community Reinvestment Act, which required banks to provide services to underserved communities. In 1976, Barbara was asked to deliver a keynote at the Democratic National Convention. This made her the first woman and the first African-American to ever deliver a keynote address at any major party convention. This keynote address solidified her as a fantastic speaker. It's listed as number five on that same top 100 speeches in the 20th century list from American Rhetoric. She spoke about the amazement of her being there. She said that instead of reciting the nation's problems, which she could absolutely do if she wanted to, the American people deserved more. They deserved a national community. They deserved to see the promise of America fulfilled, a society where all of us are equal. The applause before, during, and after her address was insane. Even though Barbara wasn't listed as a candidate, she still received a delegate vote for president. Barbara was fiercely private about her life outside of her positions. She never married, probably because she never met anyone as smart as she was. But Nancy Earl, one of those friends that Barbara had made and gone camping with, had moved in with Barbara. Maybe they were romantic partners. I hate to say definitely yes, because neither woman ever acknowledged a romantic relationship. But they were definitely partners and the very best of friends. Nancy helped her with some of her speech writing. And as Barbara's multiple sclerosis progressed, 
She also served as her caretaker. In December of 1977, Barbara called a press conference to announce that she would not be seeking re-election. She dodged and denied any questions or claims of illness, but in reality, the physical toll on her body was becoming too much. Barbara Jordan never slowed down, but it was time for her to find a new direction. Barbara accepted a position as a professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas in Austin. Her lectures were so popular that the administration had to decide admission to them by lottery. She was also often seen at the University of Texas basketball games. She withdrew from public life, but would make appearances for causes that she considered worthy, although she noticeably used a cane, walker, and then a wheelchair over time. Barbara loved to swim in her backyard pool. It helped relieve some of her symptoms, but in 1988, she drowned. Nancy found her and was able to revive her, but after this, Barbara had struggles with reoccurring pneumonia. 1994 was an eventful year for Barbara. She was appointed to chair the U.S. Commission on Immigration Reform. She served in this position until her death. President Clinton wanted to nominate Barbara for the U.S. Supreme Court, but by the time he was able to do so, her health was so poor that he couldn't. But he did award the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Barbara for having dramatically articulated an enduring standard of morality in American politics and for capturing the nation's attention and awakening its consciousness. Barbara had received many awards and recognitions in her life, but this was one that she was particularly proud of. 1994 was also the year that Barbara was diagnosed with leukemia. It was believed that the leukemia was probably caused by the aggressive treatment of her MS symptoms. It was a hard diagnosis for Barbara to receive, but she said she was just going to go on living until the day that she couldn't anymore. On January 17, 1996, Barbara Jordan died of pneumonia. In her pocketbook at the time of her death were two photos of her grandpa Patton and a palm-sized copy of the U.S. Constitution. She was buried in the Texas State Cemetery, the first African-American to be buried with this honor. Barbara Jordan was a remarkable woman. She believed in herself, worked hard to create change, and inspire all of those who ever heard her speak. She was fiercely loyal, and she challenged many of the stereotypes of women of any color, but especially black women, throughout her life. I, f- I feel inspired by Barbara, which is one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast. I'm using my voice. I hope that you've enjoyed hearing about Barbara Jordan, and I hope that next time you face a challenge, you remember that you're special and that you can channel a little bit of Barbara's confidence and passion and just be as loud as you need to be. Please visit our Instagram, Have You Met Her Podcast, for the resources used in researching Barbara Jordan. Rate and review the podcast and tell your friends. And if you have an idea for a future episode, please email me at haveyoumetherpodcast at gmail.com. Remember to subscribe so that you don't miss an episode. 
We'll see you next week.